Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace. Namaste, everybody. It's such a pleasure to be back with your group again this year. Um, although we are restricted by the pandemic, but luckily, thanks to this technology, we are able to meet and do some Vedanta. And the subject also has been nicely chosen by Prabodhji um, in this short retreat. This is doable. We have a chapter with a few verses, only eight verses. It's the shortest uh, chapter in Panchadashi. So what I'll do is I'll um, talk for a short while, maybe 45 minutes to maximum one hour, and then we'll take questions. As we go along, you'll have questions. You can write it down in the chat or raise your hand, and then we will we'll take up the questions. So we have two sessions uh, each day. Today, two sessions, and two tomorrow. The book, we are all well acquainted with this, Panchadashi. It's one of the classics of post-Shankara Vedanta, written by Vidyaranya Swami more than 600 years ago in the Vijayanagar Kingdom. And uh, for those who are interested in the study of classical Advaita Vedanta, this is an absolute uh, must, the Panchadashi. Uh, it takes its name from the 15 chapters. So 15 chapters, which are divided into three groups of five each. So the first group is five chapters on what is called Viveka on the analysis of discernment. And this chapter, the fifth one, is at the end of the, this first tri uh, triad, uh, the first third of the book. So it's the last chapter of the Viveka section, uh, fifth chapter. What does it deal with? It deals with the essence of Vedanta. Mahavakya, we are acquainted with this term in Vedanta. Mahavakya gives us the essence of Vedanta in, um, uh, in, the, in the short span, in the compass of one sentence. So we are acquainted with the different Mahavakyas in the Taitiriya, I mean, sorry, in the Aitiriya Upanishad, Rig Veda, Mahavakya, Pragyanam Brahma. And then from the Brihadarnik um, Upanishad in the Yajur Veda, we have Aham Brahmasmi from the Sama Veda and Chandogya Upanishad, we have Tattvamasi. And then finally, Natharva Veda uh, in the Mardukya Upanishad, Ayamatma Brahma. So all of these Mahavakyas, they express the essence of Advaita Vedanta. And they express the same thing. All of them mean the same thing. Uh, how does one define Mahavakya? Akhandartha Bodhakam Vakyam. So that sentence which expresses the undivided, uh, homogeneous, infinite, uh, akhandartha, brahman, uh, that is mahavakya, or jiva, brahma, aikya, bodhakam, vakyam, that which expresses the identity of the jiva and brahman. So that sentence is called a mahavakya. Are there only four of them? No, there are actually many of them. In different Upanishads, you get the, these identity statements. It is just as a convention that we take one from each of the uh, Vedas. So one from the Rig Veda, the Aitariya Mahavakya, one from the Yajur Veda, uh, the Brihadaranyak Mahavakya, one from the Sama Veda, Chandogya Mahavakya, which is the most well-known. Many people have heard of this Tattva Masi. In California, I knew this gentleman whose name was Tattva Masi. 
yet given himself the name Tattvamasi. So that's the one. And then uh, in the Atharva Veda, the Mandukya Mahavakya, Ayamatma Brahma. Um, what about the other statements in the Upanishads? If this is Mahavakya, then what about the other statements? The other statements uh, are called Avantara Vakya, secondary. They describe the different terms in the Mahavakya. They describe the other ancillary things that we have to know in Vedanta to ultimately come up to this understanding of the Mahavakya. So those statements in the Upanishads, which do not uh, talk directly about the identity of Jiva and Brahman, that you are Brahman, this is not directly mentioned. Those statements are called Avantara or secondary uh, sentences. And the whole point is that they all lead up to this Mahavakya. You see, taking a step back, what is Vedanta? And indeed, what is Vedic studies? The whole thing traditionally uh, is called Mimamsa. So Mimamsa means Pujita Vichara, a reverential inquiry into a text. Reverential inquiry into a text. There's a modern term, hermeneutics. Uh, so this is a kind of very ancient Indian hermeneutics. What happens is when you have a text and you don't have the author and you want to know what does it mean, you must have some system of interpreting it, some way of finding out the uh, meanings of the uh, sentences. So um, the Vedas, authors, the rishis are not present in, in front of us. So these peculiar statements are there. What do they mean? And a whole system was set up for interpreting the Vedic uh, sentences. Um, one part of it obviously deals with rituals, yajna. So the question was, this particular sentence, which yajna does it refer to? Uh, how is it to be performed? What are the mantras to be chanted? And then later Shankaracharya comes and shows that not all of it deals with rituals. There are these texts called the Upanishads, which are found uh, in the Vedas, which, which teach the highest, uh, final wisdom of the, of the Vedas. So that's, that's why it's called Vedanta. Vedanta, not only in the sense of the end of the Vedas, but more in the sense of the highest teaching or the final teaching of the Vedas, the Siddhanta, the, the uh, ultimate teachings of the Vedas. So what is the meaning of these Vedantic statements? Do they also refer to uh, rituals, so Shankaracharya had to work hard to show the uh, ritualistic school, the Purva Mimamsakas, that they do not. They constitute a new kind of text, a different kind of text, which talks about reality, what we are and what is the reality of this universe. So this kind of text, the Upanishads, the same techniques which were applied by the ritualists to find out the meanings of the Vedic sentences, the uh, ritualistic portion, the same techniques were applied by Shankara and his disciples to extract the meaning of the Upanishads. So this also is Mimamsa. Mimamsa, the reverential inquiry. So now you have two kinds of Mimamsa based on the Vedas. One, dealing with rituals. Karma Mimamsa. Karma means action, but speci specifically here, ritualistic action. So the whole Karma Kanda, which is the bulk of the Vedas, so you have an uh, interpretation of the sentences found in the Karmakanda, Purva Mimamsa, the earlier Mimamsa. And then the exercise to interpret the sentences found in the uh, Upanishads, the later Mimamsa, uh, which is 
the uttara mimamsa so this uttara mimamsa is what we know as we know as vedanta in fact for a traditional pandit our philosophy and spirituality and meditation and all of that is all secondary for a traditional pandit vedanta is uttara mimamsa a hermeneutic exercise in decoding the meaning of vedantic sentences specifically primarily the mahavakya if we really want to know what vedanta means then we have to understand the mahavakya remember this is in the framework of advaita vedanta it's an exercise carried out by shankaracharya and his followers down to us so advaita vedanta holds that the entire teaching of the of the upanishads can be found in these mahavakyas as i said there are many such mahavakyas many uh, many sentences express uh, the identity of jiva and brahman um, purely as a matter of convention we take four of them tattvamasi is very well known aham brahmasmi is also well known um, now this um, exercise is actually fairly a technical one it's uh, there's a lot involved there i will not start with the technical part of it because then i'll scare away most people so what i'll do is actually enter the chapter so that we have some sense of progress uh, we'll do a little bit and maybe in the next session uh, in the afternoon session i will step back and take a look at what is under the hood so you're driving the car which is very nice but inside the car a lot of uh, machinery is working what is the machinery working under a mahavakya that we will take a look in the um, maybe afternoon session vidyarnya swami does not go into all that uh, he sort of takes it for granted one reason is uh, that it's covered in the first and second chapters in the first chapter in verses i think uh, verses 45 onwards many of the technical details of analyzing a mahavakya uh, have been touched upon in second chapter also in some places so he sort of takes it for granted that we know the mechanism that's why this chapter is surprisingly small only eight verses so four mahavakyas one from each veda for each mahavakya he devotes two verses so that's what we will see today uh, that uh, we'll take up one the one of the mahavakyas one by one and analyze them the whole chapter is pretty brief pretty compact and surprisingly so because as we shall see in the afternoon uh, how much uh, of technical analysis is there underneath this mahavakya viveka an analysis into the nature of the mahavakya how much is going on there we will see he has uh, avoided all of that in this chapter just giving us the essence the final result of all that analysis is just given it to us there so in its own way it's good it's good to get the essence of it and uh, leave the technical details aside for for the time being is there anything else that i wanted to say before starting all right let's just dive into it once again it would have been logical to give the technical background of it how this is analyzed and how these results come but then the risk of boring people it's always there that's why let me just go into the verses we get a sense of progress that uh, we are making some progress and then when you are ready i'll spring the boring details upon you i hope you've got the text prabhu ji had forwarded the english uh, text 
I think Swami Krishnananduji's translation and comments. But any, any text will do it. Just the fifth chapter of the uh, Panchadashi. Is there anything else that I wanted to say? No. Verse number one. Yene kshate shrinoti dam jigrati vyakaroti cha swadva swadu vijanati so that by which a person sees and hears and smells and speaks and can distinguish between tasty, pleasant and unpleasant tastes, sweet and bitter tastes, and so on. This is called pragyanam, consciousness. So this is referring to the Aitadya Upanishad Mahavakya from the Rig Veda. So it starts with the Rig Veda. In the Rig Veda, we find the Aitiri Upanishad. In that, we find the Mahavakya. The Mahavakya is very short. Pragyanam Brahma. Okay, so there's one more thing I wanted to say, just by the way. When you say Mahavakya, Maha means great. So Mahavakya, don't uh, make the mistake of thinking it's a very long sentence. Because in Sanskrit, you do have very long sentences. Um, it's, the Mahavakyas are usually very short. And the ones we have selected, the four conventionally selected Mahavakyas, they're all very short. Pragyanam Brahma, Aham Brahmasmi, Tattvamasi, Ayamatma Brahma. Two words or three words, that's all. So Maha in what sense? Arthato Mahan. Uh, great or profound in the sense of the meaning, not in the length of the words, uh, length of the sentence. So this is Pragyanam Brahma. What literally it means, consciousness is the ultimate reality. Consciousness is the, is, is the infinite reality. Pragyanam Brahma. Two verses, verses one and two. In verse one, it defines what is meant by Pragyanam, consciousness. What does he say? Look at our daily experience. What we smell and taste. He says, Ikshate, what we see. Uh, the, our experience of seeing. Srinoti, even. What we hear, right here, the experiences which you are here right now, for example, you're hearing my voice. So, Srinoti, this experience of hearing, not what you are hearing. I'm hearing your words, Swami. No, very experience, the first person experience of hearing, the first person experience of seeing, um, Jigrati, smells, experience of smelling something. Um, then Vyakaroti, speaks, experience of speech, Right now, I'm the, having the experience of speaking. Swadu, uh, aswadu, vijanati, taste, pleasant and unpleasant taste. And so, four sense organs, he has left out one, touch. So, it is, it is to be included. We have to add it to make the five sense organs and our five sense experiences. And he has given one activity of the motor organs. Vyakaroti speaks. Uh, by that, you must understand all the other experiences are included. Uh, he had just mentioned one, and then experiences are included. Rest, rest of the experiences of using motor organs are included. Again, side note, how do I know all these things? Am I making it up? So there are multiple commentaries. One is this tiny little book. It's a traditional commentary uh, by Ramakrishna. Not Sri Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, but a great Vedantic scholar who lived a few hundred years ago. So he wrote a commentary. So you can see, for example, there, there are the verses and there are this, this commentary by 
uh, Ramakrishna. But there are multiple commentaries down to our day in Hindi and in English and in Bengali and other different languages. So if you go through these, you will find the interpretations. Um, so by Vyakaroti, by speaks, all the activities of all motor organs, walking and grasping something and so on, they are also included. The experiences of our, our sensory experiences, our uh, experiences of acting, doing something, action through the motor organs, but also the experiences of thinking, of remembering, of desiring, of hating, of, uh, of peace, of restlessness. These are all experiences. All of these experiences, what makes all of them possible? By what are we having these experiences or what is having these experiences? This is a profound question. In Western thought, in modern thought, we are just now beginning to ask this question. It's the so-called hard problem of consciousness. David Chalmers, who is here in NYU, the mind-brain uh, consciousness unit, he has formulated this term, the hard problem of consciousness. From time to time, thinkers have asked this question, but he has formulated it for our times. He calls it the hard problem of consciousness. See, there is a problem of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. So there's a physiology involved. How do the eyes work? How do the nerves work and the, the optic nerves work? And what happens in the brain? And then how is it all put together and we get vision, 3D vision. Uh, all of these things are their color. So how do we see all that? Again, a separate problem of smell, of touch. How do we understand the physiology behind it? Even the psychology behind it. But that is not the question. Um, David Chalmers says, that is one kind of question. But another question is, why is it all this first person experience? Why is it all this first person experience? There is something common to all these experiences. Seeing is very different from hearing. Hearing is very different from speaking. And there are different mechanisms involved, different feelings. But one thing is common to all of them. They're all conscious experiences. You feel it directly. It has a shining quality to it. All of us are feeling it right now. Our entire lives are this direct first-person experience, a movie playing in our heads as, as it were. That's David Chalmers' language. In contrast, there was a mathematician, uh, Marvin Minsky. So uh, he, I think he passed away a few years ago. So he, he was a materialist reductionist. And in one talk, I heard him say, well, there is no problem of consciousness. There's only a problem of, uh, of seeing, of vision, of hearing, and um, things like that. And you don't understand them and you put them in one basket and say there is something called consciousness behind it. No, there's only the separate types of problems and that you solve them and the problem will be solved. Not at all. There's a deep mistake there. That's what David Chalmers points out. That apart from the physiology involved, the psychology involved, there's one thing common. Uh, this, this is revealed, shiningness, the direct first-person experience which all of us are having, without which like, the world would go dark for us. Our, we would not be aware of our own existence, let alone the existence of anything else. Today, the problem becomes even more clear with the advent of these smart machines, um, AI and robots and all. So there are machines now which can do all of this. They can, um, they have sensors. They can see and hear and smell and touch. Often when I talk about something, um, I suddenly see in the phone, Google Assistant is starting to, I did not understand that, to say that again. So it's listening and trying to help. 
trying to find out you know doing a google search by itself not not needed but that means is there are machines around us which are listening to us which can see us which can actually react um, autonomous machines are there and yet none of them are conscious none of them have the internal conscious life that you or i do you say how do we know how do you know that i know that because the inventors of these machines most ambitious google engineer or mit engineer also will not claim that i have invented consciousness there is no sign of that so my point is you can have all this seeing hearing smelling tasting um, all of these activities walking talking also machines are doing that without consciousness and that can go on and in today's world that's very clear why are we having direct experiences connected to these activities here is a subtle point i'm making vedanta is not interested in in your seeing hearing smelling tasting in in the contents of our experiences but vedanta is very much interested in the fact that we are having experiences at all so this one common thing common to all our experiences and most essential to our lives this consciousness let me give another simple example here i have so many electrical gadgets there's a light here and a laptop here phone there a fan there now when they were in the shop or in the box light was not shining laptop was not working fan was not going round and round phone was not ringing now i can ask what got into them the light the laptop the phone the fan now the light is shining laptop it's doing its own thing the phone is doing something different fan is doing some they are all active now but there is one common thing see the devices are different <coughs> the devices are different their functioning is different one shines one goes round and round and gives gives air another one allows me to communicate with you but there is one common thing running in and through all of them which pervades them and activates them which is not directly connected with shining uh, going round and round or um, communicating that is called electricity we know that that it once that goes through all these devices powers them then each of the devices does what it is designed for and what they are designed for the devices are di different their functions are different but this one thing enlivens all of them activates all of them that's an example not a bad example what is the one thing behind is asking seeing hearing smelling tasting talking if you say what is the one thing behind the phenomenological experience of seeing hearing smelling tasting talking it is basically hard problem of consciousness asked by vidyaranya 700 years ago and before that keno upanishad 5000 years ago approximately kene shitam patati preshitam mana kena prana prathama prayeti yukta kene shitam vacham imam vadanti chakshushrotram kaudeva yunakti so what is that which uh, illumines the mind and makes the mind think gives us the experience of thinking what is that which enables me to speak exactly the same thing which um vidyaranya is asking vyakaroti that which makes the ears function and the eyes function and the nose function and so on so that the answer to that is consciousness 
here, what consciousness is meant by pragyanam? Um, two things are meant. Pragyanam, consciousness, two things are meant. One is the direct awareness connected with, you know, how does it feel to uh, see something? How does it feel to see red, for example? How does it feel to hear music? How does it feel to taste something? Consciousness and its objects, all different from each other. The um, experience of hearing is different from the experience of seeing, is different from the experience of eating. And each experience of hearing or seeing is different from the other one because their contents are different. So tasting coffee is different from tasting tea because coffee and tea are different and they give different tastes. Coffee and tea are different and the vritti, um, which is generated when your sense organ comes into contact with these different objects, that generates a different vritti in the mind. And the experiences are different, but coffee and tea may be different. The vrittis generated in the mind may be different because of the activity of the sense organs. But what is the common thing which illumines both of them? So coffee experience, tea experience, different and yet the same because both are revealed in a direct uh, first person experience. Now, pragyanam means both. Both means what? Coffee experience also, tea experience. Both are pragyanam. Both are experiences, vrittis in the mind, which are lit up. But another thing pragyanam means is one consciousness behind all of these experiences. So pragyanam, direct meaning of pragyanam is all our awareness experiences, all our consciousness experiences, variety, thousands of experiences from the morning till now, continuously going on, sensory experiences, uh, internal mental thoughts, feelings, emotions, uh, ideas, memories, all of these variety, this whole series is called Pragyanam. That's the direct meaning of Pragyanam. And the implied meaning, which is most important, the indirect meaning, the underlying meaning of all of this is one consciousness. Not different, is one consciousness. That's what it is pointing towards. Now here, something very technical is going on. This is called Vakyartha and Lakshyartha, which I'll talk about in the afternoon. Um, we, we are all Vedantins here, we have come across this again and again, so it will not be unfamiliar. Vachyartha or Mukhyartha means the direct meaning, the dictionary meaning, the expressed meaning of a word. When you take a word and look it up in the dictionary, you get certain meanings. And those meanings are called Vachyartha, literal meaning of the word. So the literal meaning of Pragyanam is a variety of consciousness experiences which we have throughout the day. And there are a variety. But note, the variety is caused by the variety of objects generating a variety of vrittis in the mind, movements in the mind. Is consciousness itself a variety? The implication is no, no. Consciousness itself is one. Just like this one light, one sunlight is falling on so many entities. And the sunlight pervading the book shows me book. The sunlight, I'm using pervading, just means reflecting off. Sunlight pervading a tree shows me the green tree with its brown branches. Sunlight shining or off or pervading a building shows me this brown stone next door. Now, each of them looks different. Each of them is shining in the sunlight. Sunlight is one. Sunlight is not different. Similarly, um, consciousness, pragyanam is one. The implied meaning called lakshyartha of consciousness is consciousness itself. Apart from, apart from, 
the objects which it illumines. What objects does it illumine? First of all, consciousness shines in the mind and illumines the movements of the mind. The different vrittis are formed. Vritti is a movement of the mind, a change in the mind. And through the vrittis, the objects are illumined. Objects of touch and taste and sight and uh, hearing. So various objects are illumined. <clears throat> Sometimes the objects might be internal in the mind itself. Thoughts, emotions, desires. So the variety of objects are illumined. And then these experiences seem different from each other. So that's the Mukhyartha or Vachyartha Pragyanam and then Lakshyartha Pragyanam. Vedanta is interested in the Lakshyartha, in the implied meaning. Why not then directly talk about Lakshyartha? Why not? Why talk about Vachyartha and Lakshyartha? The problem is this is a teaching. It's, it's the meant to make us understand. If directly somebody talks about pure consciousness, we have no idea what they're talking about. So a good teacher always starts with experiences which are obvious. Do you see a red rose? Yes. Do you hear musical sound? Yes. Okay, now we can start. That seeing the red rose, not the rose itself, the seeing of the red rose, the feeling you're getting, the experience, internal experience you're getting, that is pragyanam one. The experience of listening to a music, not the music itself, your experience of listening to the in, inside you, the feeling that you get, the direct experience, that is <clears throat> Pragyanam 2. Now, if you eliminate the red rose and the music, the movements of the mind associated with it, that directness, that first person experience in Sanskrit terms, Swaprakashata, effulgence within, revealed, effortlessly revealed, that one is the implied meaning Pragyanam Lakshartha. So we'll have more to say about this Vachyartha Lakshartha, but this whole exercise of Mahavakyartha Viveka, an analysis of the Mahavakya, uh, it, it revolves around this vital distinction of Vachyartha Lakshartha. There's a deep philosophical reason why we cannot directly speak of it. One reason why we cannot directly speak of it, because we are teaching. You must begin where the person is comfortable and then take the person into a subtle understanding. So that's teaching. But there is a philosophical reason why we directly cannot refer to uh, pure consciousness or, or the Lakshartha. The, the philosophical, deep philosophical reason is words actually cannot refer to that. Um, this we takes us into a whole subject of how philosophy of language functions in the Bhashya leading the segue into the Mandukya Upanishad seventh mantra. Uh, Shankaracharya says, Language cannot refer to the theory of the uh, pure consciousness directly. Why not? What can language do? I'm not going into details here, but many of uh, us are uh, familiar with it. <clears throat> Jati, Guna, Kriya, Sambandha, even Ruri is there. So five different functions which language can, language can function if these, he says, Shabda, Prabritti, Nimitta, these factors which enable, instigate, enable the, fun the functioning of language. Five factors are there. Um, either something belongs to a class or a species, jati, or it has a quality, guna, or there is some function associated uniquely with that entity, kriya, or it's a part of a relationship, sambandha, or it's conventional, you just name something, something. X is called Y. You do that, ruri, by convention. If none of them are possible, language cannot function. If none of them are possible, language cannot function. Pure consciousness uh, cannot be directly designated. 
it does not belong to Brahman or Turiya, does not belong to any particular class. Uh, it does not have any quality being Nirguna, beyond qualities, beyond attributes. It does not have any particular activity. So just a minute, hearing, smelling, tasting. Yes, hearing, smelling, tasting, these are activities which belong to the sense organs, which belong to the antakkarana, the, the mind, but they don't belong to the, uh, to the uh, consciousness itself. So activity also cannot designate pure consciousness. Relationship, we know Advaita says, Brahman is Advaitam non-dual. Relationship actually requires at least two. Dvinishta uh, Sambandha. Relationship requires at least two entities. If there is no two, non-duality, then relationship is also not possible. But don't you use words conventionally, just name. Convention means I name this baby Rama or uh, I name this baby Kamala, let's say. Uh, right now I'm getting inquiries. Ask Swami, what does Kamala mean? I say, first of all, it is Kamala, not Kamala. And um, Kamal means lotus. Kamala means she who dwells or sits on the lotus. In fact, the whole name if you take together, Kamala Devi. So it's very clear, it means Lakshmi. Today, by the way, is Ganesh Chaturthi. Ganesha is Lakshmi's brother. <coughs> now that's a designation. From now on, this baby will be called Kamala Devi. Uh, but to use the designation, so why can't we do that? Why not say, from now on, this thing will be called Atman or Turiya or Brahman? You cannot. For designation, for naming, for convention, you need to point out which baby is going to be called Kamala. Which person here is called Ram. Unless you point out, distinguish that person, it will not work. If you just say, call Ram. Um, from this audience, which one is Ram? I will not tell you. Then I can't, I can't call. Similarly, you cannot point out pure consciousness. That this, I can say this is called hand. This is called shirt. But tell me which is called pure consciousness. You can't point it out. And therefore, designation, Ruri will not work. Giving a name will not work. So the five factors are not present, which enable the functioning of language these five factors are not present in consciousness. Uh, so language cannot directly refer to consciousness. Therefore, you have to go through all this struggle of mukhyata, vachyata, lakshyata. We'll see all those intricacies in the uh, class. I remember, you know, we are studying about hermeneutics in one place, how to extract the meaning of biblical sentences and thinking, Millennia before all these exercises, the ancient Indians, the Vedic scholars had developed an entire, very sophisticated hermeneutical system, how to find out, extract meaning from sentences. We have all seen that. And uh, when you do Mahavakya Artha Vichara, the Shadvida Linga, how to extract the Tatparya, the purport, the, the, the intention behind a sentence. Uh, and very sophisticated techniques. I, I would say more sophisticated than that are available to modern thought. And those techniques were used by Shankara in uh, uh, extracting the meaning of Vedantic sentences, especially in Mahavakya Tavichara. So what do we get from this? If we look at the verse now, that one thing by which you have the experience of seeing, Srinoti, that one thing by which you have the experience of hearing, Jigrati, the experience of smelling, 
vyakaruti the experience of speaking swadu aswadu vijana the experience of tasting pleasant and unpleasant uh, tastes that one thing in itself it points towards pure consciousness tat pragyanam udiritam the lakshartha of this the implied meaning the pointing is towards pure consciousness notice one thing the uniqueness about advaita vedanta the beauty of it and the power of it what are they talking about here seeing smelling tasting experiences which are available to all of us see the whole problem with religion is it starts with faith so you have to believe in something god exists and then you have to pray to god and have faith in god suppose you say god doesn't exist i don't believe in it each religion says it differently why should i believe well, how peculiar your religion says god has the form of an elephant when prabhupada came here the founder of iskon i was reading early days of iskon a nice book so one american gentleman asked him are we to really believe that god is a little blue boy so he's a pakka vaishnava he said yes no arguments <laughs> but the problem is if people will not want want to believe such things i found here i thought people would be most um, puzzled by ganesha but everybody likes ganesha here i asked somebody in california that uh, how is it that uh, americans are so familiar with ganesha and it's everywhere and they said everybody loves who who doesn't love a cute elephant everybody loves cute elephants <coughs> but if you listen to somebody like richard dawkins christopher hitchens sam harris they are, they are harsh critics of religion and you see so many debates between them and pastors and you know theologians and you'll notice one thing all the time it's the pastors or the theologians people from the side of religion who more or less lose the debate they have the worst of it it is very difficult to prove in a debate um something that is entirely based on faith at least until you have these experiences even then it's your own private experience even when sri ramakrishna was having the experience of mother kali in dakshineshwar only sri ramakrishna was seeing not those around him they were reporting that he is in a trance in samadhi and so on talking to the divine mother but where we are not seeing this so uh, faith is open to very big question in today's world very big question as against this yoga comes patanjali yoga and says not faith we are going to show you by experience you believe experience yes we will give you experience like when vivekananda goes to sri ramakrishna narendra nath goes to sri ramakrishna it becomes vivekananda how why he asks the question have you seen god and ramakrishna says yes i have just as i see you i have seen god and you can see god too so this is a promise of an extraordinary experience a mystical experience which will prove to you that religion is true so as vivekananda said in this country the religion is not a matter of uh, believing in something it is a matter of experiencing religion is realization now uh, he further says if i have an immortal soul i must feel it if god exists i must be able to see god so this is a language of experience and this really became very popular it's very appealing that you can actually experience directly <clears throat> a lot of new age religion here is based on this but there's a problem with it what is the problem remember all this is not advaita i'm preparing the ground for advaita there's a problem with the problem is this 
how many of us have the vision of makali how many of us have the vision that meera had of the krishna of krishna how long it is possible i'm sure i totally believe that these experiences exist of course they exist mystics throughout the ages have had these experiences they are very powerful very convincing but the problem is one it takes a long time until that time it is still faith two even when you get it it's not common you only have it not others and others have to believe you and to take it on faith at that point a neuroscientist might come and say that uh, uh, yes you think that you have experienced that you are one like the ocean boundless and all of that or you are getting a vision of light you think so and i'm not denying it but it's actually not that you have a little problem in your brain a little stroke is there and uh, bleeding on this side of the brain and that's why you feel your experience it does not prove anything they can say that and they have even in sri ramakrishna's own lifetime most people around in dakshineshwar and most of people took him to be a crazy fellow he is mad man of dakshineshwar uh, so this is the problem with mystic experience wonderful absolutely true i am not doubting mystic experience and we should have it and it is most nourishing and very good but advaita says you don't need to have faith in something you don't even need extraordinary mystical experiences what you need ikshate can you see something yes see what mother kali shiva krishna ganesha no 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 can you see the flower the cup of tea uh, the person next to you can you see yes that's enough for advaita can you hear my words yes that's enough for advaita can you smell taste touch can you think any thought any thought comes to your mind any emotion comes to your mind any desire any kind of conscious experience do you have of course we have all the time even to deny that we do not have such experiences we need consciousness so it's always present it's undeniable that is enough for advaita vedanta starting there advaita proceeds these texts will guide us to the highest non dual realization that's the extraordinary power but the subtlety of advaita many people don't get it you are trained you have been hearing it again and again so you basically know what this is about but many people don't get it they are very intelligent people also uh, they think it is some kind of you are trying to hypnotize yourself into i am brahman i am brahman something like that no it's vivekananda said it is dehypnotization you are already hypnotized so this pure consciousness now the question arises all right so i am this one consciousness which is experienced in various experiences of seeing hearing smelling tasting okay i understand one unchanging awareness so i can see how many people are there 66 i can count are there 66 pure consciousnesses who are watching this participating in this program are there 7 billion human beings uh, 7 billion consciousnesses or every uh, sentient creature billions and billions of consciousnesses or one consciousness vedanta says one consciousness that's what is there next pragyanam how many pragyanams one only verse number 2 chatur mukhendra deveshu manushashvagavadishu chaitanyam ekam brahmata pragyanam brahmamayapi the one consciousness which is in brahma 
Indra and other gods, as well as in human beings and horses and cows, that is Brahman. So this consciousness in me also is Brahman. <clears throat> How many consciousnesses? In the Bhagavad Gita, 13th chapter, 2nd verse, Sri Krishna says, Kshetragyam chapi maam vidhi sarva bharata. This consciousness you feel within yourself, Arjuna? Yes. By which you know all these things? Yes. Everybody has the same consciousness in all this army around, Kauravas, Pandavas, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, even the horses and elephants. This consciousness running through all of them, that it is a one undivided consciousness. And I am that. Krishna says, one consciousness in all, appearing to be many. Avibhaktam chabhuteshu, vibhaktam ivachasthitam. Undivided in all beings, appearing to be divided among millions and billions of beings. One sun shining in the sky and millions of globules of water, you know, as dew in the trees and plants. In each you will see a tiny sun is shining. So this one consciousness shining in millions of body-mind systems. That is what we are experiencing. Now he gives examples. One second. Yes. Chaturmukha, the highest, you know, Brahma, so highest among the gods. There, the one same consciousness is there. Indra, the king of the gods, same consciousness. Deveshu, among all the gods, Varuna and Chandra and Vayu, same one consciousness. Manushyaha, among billions of human beings, one consciousness running in and through all of us, but associated with multiple body mind systems. Ashwagavadishu, where varieties of animals, one consciousness. Chaitanyam ekam. So, this one consciousness in billions of human beings, in billions of sentient beings, past, present, and future, this ekam Chaitanyam is Brahma. This one undivided consciousness, as if divided in billions of beings. Why as if divided? Because the minds are different, and vrittis are different, our experiences are different. So the in Vachyartha, Pragyanam is different. Not only for each being, in each being also, moment to moment it is different. Experience to experience is different. But the implied meaning, Lakshyartha, is one consciousness, not only in each being, in all beings, it is one consciousness. Atav Pragyanam Brahma Mayapi. The consciousness, pure consciousness, Lakshyartha of Pragyanam in me, which I am. In me means which I am, actually. It is the same Brahman. Therefore, Pragyanam Brahma. The consciousness within me is the consciousness within everybody else and I am that one unbroken, undivided consciousness. This is the meaning of Pragyanam Brahma. I am infinite consciousness. One without a second. Experiencing all of this. Bodies and minds and worlds. Two questions here. One is, uh, you just stated it. You nicely quoted Bhagavad Gita with a um, profound voice and so as you are expected to believe. Till now you are giving nice arguments and now you are just quoting scripture and saying it is one consciousness. It does not feel like that. It feels we are different. It's a serious question. But we are different consciousnesses in different bodies. Different selves in different bodies. Um, Notice a lot is going on here. 
self has already been identified with consciousness. It's not that we are a self with consciousness. The self is consciousness. Now, how many selves? How many consciousnesses? It's a profound question because only Advaita Vedanta says it is one consciousness and some schools of um, Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism. All other schools of philosophy, they stop at multiple selves. Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, they all say that there are multiple selves and multiple consciousnesses. So why are you saying that there's one consciousness? Advaita turns the question around and asks, why do you think there are many consciousnesses? When you say there are many bodies, understandable, easily proved, even the Zoom is counting. So 67, it counts. 67 people have logged in. If you go to their houses, you'll have one or more bodies. You can count them, head count. Minds are many. That also can be proved. You have a class and you give a questionnaire, you'll find different answers, different perspectives coming from different people. That means thought processes are different. Each of us is having a different experience right now. So mind is also different. But consciousness is different apart from body and mind. Consciousness in itself is different in each being. How will you um, approve that? What is the distinguishing mark? What is the distinguisher for consciousness? <clears throat> so Sankhya, for example, says, wait a minute. I'll give you Mr. Advaitin. I'll give you uh, distinguishers. They give, I think, five arguments. But the arguments are so simple, we, we can easily dismiss them. For example, they say, if consciousness is same in all beings, if one falls asleep, everybody will fall asleep. If one is awake, all will awake. Our answer is very simple. The waking and sleeping and dreaming are not functions of consciousness. They are all functions of mind. And mind is many. We are admitting that. There are many minds. Some understand. In the same class, Shankaracharya humorously says, some understand. Some understand only a little bit. Some do not understand. And some understand just the opposite. So the minds are many. And uh, one may be awake, one may fall asleep. That happens, especially in Vedanta class. So that happens. But how do you know that consciousness is awake or consciousness is dreaming, consciousness is sleeping? Those words have no meaning. If you understand what is meant by Pragyanam, it never is um, dreaming or sleeping. Consciousness is ever awake. It is always shining. Another um, argument from the Sankhyan would be that, uh, see, if one is enlightened, then the other will also become enlightened. If consciousness is same, if you are all same consciousness, Guru is enlightened, will be wonderful. We will all get enlightened, but we do not. So we are all separate. No, it is not consciousness which gets enlightened. It's not consciousness which is in ignorance. Ignorance and knowledge are in the mind. And all the activities we are doing, Vedanta and all, are all in the mind, illumined by consciousness, referring to consciousness. But activity is done by the mind. Study of Vedanta is done by the mind. Ignorance is in the mind. Knowledge will also hopefully come in the mind and remove ignorance. So different, Guru's mind is different. My mind is different. Guru's mind has become enlightened. My mind has not become enlightened. It's quite possible the consciousness is the same. Another um, doubt. A death of one will be the death of all. If one is born, then one... That is even more simple. Death and birth are, uh, are body, not even mind, let alone consciousness. So the Sankhyan arguments really do not hold much water. When they say Bahupurushavada, many consciousnesses, they give these arguments. But uh, as you can see, <coughs> they all refer to uh, body or mind. So this is one question. Uh, objections against your one consciousness. 
you will see there's no valid objection. Then, if consciousness is understood properly, not in mixture with body-mind. The second big question with which I'll end is, um, wait a minute, you just said one consciousness, but you admitted there are many minds, there are many bodies, and the world is full of millions and billions of entities from quarks to quasars, uh, from ants to dolphins and whales. So many kinds of entities are there in the world. So it's not Advaitam. Advaitam means non-duality. There's plenty of duality around. You have established one consciousness. Fine. Suppose if I go with you, but you cannot call it non-dual consciousness because there is duality apart. There is the object of consciousness. So the next great question is that what is the relationship between consciousness and its object? What is the relationship between subject and object? What is the relationship between awareness and, and what you are aware of? Right now you're aware and you're aware of many things. You're aware of many things. Those things and your awareness. I would, should not even say your awareness, you the awareness. What is the relationship? Many answers are there. Materialist will say your awareness is nothing but a product of matter. Subject emerges from matter, brain and nervous system generate. Somehow we don't know. At that time, David Chalmers will come and say, ah, you don't know. There's no way of showing how from brain you get to consciousness. That's one approach, re reductionist approach. The opposite approach is that consciousness creates matter. Subject creates object. So who says this? All theistic religions. God creates the universe. That's a common thing of all theistic religions. God is conscious or unconscious? Everybody will say, my God is conscious. Of course. So consciousness creates the universe. That's another possibility. There are many problems with that. Third possibility is consciousness and universe are parallel. Sankhya. Consciousness is a fundamental reality. Matter, energy, time, space, fundamental reality. And they go together and interact. Where do they interact? In minds. In, in, uh, in the subtle body. That's another possibility. Who says that? Sankhya, yoga. Then um, there is another possibility. One school of Buddhism, the Madhyama Kashunyavada, says conscious, the matter is also empty. There is no ultimate reality there. And consciousness, subject is also empty. Shunyam. Outside also emptiness, inside also emptiness. <laughs> but what Advaita Vedanta says is that all that you experience, everything that appears to consciousness, actually appears in consciousness and is nothing other than consciousness. Three stages. It is appearing to you. This universe, you cannot deny it. That's the way you say it. it's all appearing to me. Uh, it's appearing to my seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting, thinking. It's appearing to me. But to me means, is it outside and you are there and you're interacting? And you say, yeah, that's what it seems like. No, you cannot prove that. Because to prove two things are separate. Uh, book and page mark. Book and page mark are separate. To prove that, I have to show them separately to you. I made a statement. There are two things here. One is a book and one is a page mark. Though they are appearing together now, they are two different entities. You will say, show it to me, Swami. Show me book without page mark, page mark without book. Yes, I can demonstrate. Here. Here is page mark, no book. Here is book, no page mark. Two different entities. They appear together. Then you can accept, yes, page mark is different, book um, and book is different. But consciousness and matter, subject and object, can you show them separately? 
Can you show the object without consciousness? Never. Any kind of object, it has to be an object to consciousness. So it has to appear in your awareness. There is no outside your awareness. The moment you conceive of an outside awareness, that is already in your awareness because you're thinking about it. So outside, apart from awareness, in principle, you can't talk about it. If you talk about it, you're talking nonsense. Then you can talk anything. You can talk anything then. So you have to admit that the object is always in consciousness. Second stage. Third stage. If it is in consciousness, what is it made of? In Hindi, they say masala kya hai. What's the substance in it? What is it composed of? You will see if it is in consciousness, not one bit of it can be outside consciousness, then it cannot be other, anything other than consciousness. It is somehow extraordinarily the subject itself, which is appearing as the object. And how does it do so? Then the whole of Maya, Nama, Rupa, all that comes in there. But whatever you are experiencing in this world, whatever Pragyanam is experiencing in this world, inside and outside, outside means sense organs, what it reveals, inside means in the mind, whatever you experience, is nothing other than the pragyanam itself. So, pragyanam experiences itself. One Kashmiri philosopher puts it so, so beautifully. Abhinava Gupta. Prakasham prakashati. Light shines. What is that? That's the universe. You alone are shining as your universe. Yeah, I think I've run out of time. This is the meaning of pragyanam brahma. Now consciousness is unlimited. It's not that this consciousness, now it's limited by an object, like physical light. Light comes and reflects of the book. Light is separate, book is separate. Is it like that? I am consciousness and I have got so many objects? No. You are consciousness and in you, the entire universe, including that body, including that mind, they appear, play around and disappear. This is the final meaning of Pragyanam Brahma. Brahma means um, is expansion is expansion without limit, vastness. So infinite, vast awareness is, uh, is Pragyanam Brahma. That thou art, you are that. Let me stop here. I think some questions may be there. This is the first Mahavakya, Rigveda Mahavakya, Pragyanam Brahma. Maharaj, so the body, I'm not the body, I'm not the mind. Who is the knower then? All right. Question is, I'm not the body, I'm not the mind. So this leads to a big issue here. Let me quickly explain, because we are all Vedantins, we know this. Introduce the concept of Chidabhasa, reflected consciousness. Notice, we are aware of the body. When you look inwards, you're aware of the mind, thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, desires. And you're also aware that you are aware. There's a feeling of awareness, of, of consciousness. Is this Atma? No. This is what is called Chidabhasa. It is the reflection of consciousness. You can never ever say this is Atma. Atma, the, the pure consciousness is never an object. It's ever the subject. So it is ever you, not an object of your knowledge. So what we experience as being aware, that is actually Chidabhasa, reflected consciousness. And it is that reflected consciousness which enables knowledge. If we see how knowledge functions, epistemology is there in Vedanta, we'll get the answer to. 
Parbir Babu's question. What happens is um, the sense organs get data from the world outside. And again, here I'm taking a very common sense approach because if, I know there are many Vedanta scholars, they will have read Vedanta Parivasha and they will say Vritti goes outside through the sense organ. I'm not going there at all because that is, can be difficult to defend in today's uh, age. Let's just take the common sense physiological exp explanation. Light comes in, say, say eyes, light comes in from outside and um, the eyes gather this information. So by the time the objects have come to your eyes, they are in the form of light only. A pen, paper, uh, coffee, nothing comes into your eyes, luckily. And then it is all gathered images and then immediately within milliseconds, transformed into little bursts of electricity racing along your optic nerves to the brain, concerned brain center. There somehow this data, which is now in the form of little bursts of electricity, is converted into um, a mental image, an experience, a mental experience in the mind. At that point, science stops. Physiology stops. They have no idea how this happens. But Vedanta says, it borrows from Sankhya. So it says that this is called a vritti in the mind. When you see a pen right now, a vritti, pen akara vritti, a vritti, a modification of the mind in the form of the pen, simply means you cognize a pen. A pen comes up in the mind, pen akara vritti, and consciousness is always there. And the peculiar characteristic of the mind, Antakkarana, is it can reflect or channel consciousness. There are two models, Pratibhimba Vada and Avacheda Vada. Basically, consciousness can function in the mind. When it falls upon the mind, it is called uh, Chidabhasa, appearance or shadow or reflection of consciousness. And that reflection of consciousness, when it falls on the vritti in the mind, the pen akara vritti in the mind, it is illumined in a flash. And we get the knowledge, I see a pen. A vritti comes, I see a pen. So that is how we see. The direct answer to your question, Prabhupada Babu, is how do we see them? Or who is the knower? Then now you can answer, the knower is pure consciousness, limited by the mind, appearing in the mind as the reflected consciousness. Three things are involved here. Pure consciousness, you, the pure consciousness, Atma, Pragyanam, the Lakshyartha Pragyanam in the language of Aitariya Upanishad. Second, the reflection of Pragyanam in the mind called Chidavasa. Third, the mind itself, which takes the form of the pen. Form of the pen, the technical name for this is Vritti Vyapti. The mind pervades the pen. That means in your mind, there is a mind takes the form of the pen. And consciousness shines on that vritti vyapti. It's called phalab vyapti. Consciousness reveals that, that vritti. And you have the knowledge, I see a pen. Does the knower also appear in my consciousness? No. You, the consciousness, alone are the knower, but limited by the mind. And so, for example, mirror. You are looking at your face in the mirror. Now, which is the real face? The real face is there and the mirror is there. In the mirror, there's a reflected face. All three are necessary. Similarly, for knowing anything, all three are necessary. Pure consciousness, mind, reflected consciousness. Who is the knower? The complex of these three. At night, for example, at night, when we see anything in moonlight, 
So you see, we are seeing by moonlight. Who is lighting up the earth at night? Moon or sun? Practically moon, but really sun. Because without sunlight, no moonlight is possible. But practically we see only the, remember, in that night time, we don't see the sun. We see the sun only through the reflection in the moon. Who is the illuminer of the earth? Practically, if you say moon is the illuminer of the earth, yes, in one sense, but really, sun is the illuminer of the earth through the moonlight. Now, earth, take it as this world. Moon, take it as mind, antakkarana, with all the sensory organs. And the sun, take it as pure consciousness. Sun illumining the moon. The consciousness illumining the mind and sense organs. Now the mind and sense organs have become lit up. And they can reveal the world. So you see, then mind and sense organs are the knower. No, they cannot know without the pure consciousness. Just as moon cannot illumine without the sun. Then pure consciousness is the knower. No, pure consciousness by itself does not function as a knower. Knowing is actually, a, we think it's a great glory. But it's actually a limitation of consciousness. Knower must be appearing in my in consciousness, isn't it? Otherwise, because there's nothing else other than consciousness. Yes. But remember, the knower also is enabled by consciousness. Without consciousness, no knowing is possible. So, ultimately, the knower cannot be anything other than consciousness. But consciousness in itself is not a knower. It requires a mind and object. Yeah. Reflected consciousness, mind plus object. It's a complex. It's, uh, uh, it's called a pramata. So, consciousness, mind, reflected consciousness, utilizing the instruments of knowledge, pramana, gets knowledge of the objects, prameya. The knowledge comes up as, it's called prama, valid knowledge. Yeah, I had a question. Uh, so, the three other Mahavakyas talk about the identity of Atman and Brahman. Yes. But Pragyanam Brahman somehow explicitly uh, you know, does not mention Atman. Any reason for that? Yes. Jiva Brahma Aikyam, that's the condition for being a Mahavakya. Uh, or Akhandartha Bodhakam Vakyam is Mahavakya. So the Jiva is actually mentioned by uh, the word Pragyanam. The Vachyartha Pragyanam. What is the Vachyartha Pragyanam? All the experience of sentience which we are having all the time. You know, like talking, walking, thinking. All our Jiva experiences. Together they are called, or they individually they are called Pragyanam. That's the Vachyartha. So it is actually referring to the Jiva, our own experience right now. All the Mahavakyas start with us right now. So what you are experiencing right now in your awareness, that is Pragyanam. But how is that the ultimate reality? Then you have to take Lakshyartha and then, then go to the uh, reality. The Lakshyartha alone can be equated with Brahman. Swamiji, I'm asking question about uh, question of consciousness in inert matter. And uh, the second question is, the entire universe, is that only consciousness? Yes. So what is the question? The first question is about uh, consciousness in inert matter. Hmm. Is there consciousness in inert matter? Oh, okay. So, um, inert matter, the way we understand it is, there are jivas and there is there is sentient beings like us and there is this insentient world. So I am here. I think I am sentient, but the chair I am sitting on, even the clothes I am wearing, I think they are insentient. They don't have consciousness. I feel that. According to Advaita Vedanta, 
consciousness is there everywhere in everything it's all pervasive sarvavyapi um just as in what sense it is there so even the pervasion of consciousness when we say it is pervading everything you to understand in what sense is it pervading uh, is it pervading suppose i light incense here dhoop agarbatti then the agarbatti smell will pervade this room so there is a room and a space and that is filled with the fragrance of incense is consciousness like that it pervades everything uh, or is it like water pervades a wave or gold pervades an ornament or clay pervades a pot when you say clay pervades a pot what you mean is the pot is nothing but clay every bit of it is clay similarly although it appears as a pot it has got a name it's got a form and a function nama roopa vyavahara distinguishes it but in substance in reality it is nothing but clay similarly this entire universe what we call inert matter is also nothing but consciousness remember consciousness in what sense in the lakshyaartha as pure consciousness in that sense only it exists mm-hmm. now then you will say is there no distinction between inert matter and sentient beings jagat and jeeva why are you using two words sentient insentient jagat and jeeva jeeva and jagat uh, there is a difference remember now the this whole concept of chidabhasa reflected awareness so what makes consciousness an active factor in knowledge it's only when you reflect it in the mind when you channelize it through the mind then it becomes available for use then you can say like pragyanam ikshate jigrati you see and you smell and you hear shrinoti idam all this is possible not just because of pure consciousness because of the presence of subtle body and uh, the reflected consciousness chidabhasa so similarly what is the distinction between inert matter and a jiva like us difference is that inert so called inert matter there is consciousness there also but it does not have a subtle body it does not have a reflector it does not have an antakarana therefore you don't see the manifestation of consciousness there in fact um i remember um dr bose pradeep bose who is a senior scientist at ibm he has asked this question our intelligent machines can we make them complex enough to mimic a subtle body then the machines will become conscious in principle you have to admit if vedanta says a subtle body can reflect consciousness and form a chidabhasa then it becomes a jiva like us uh if a machine can do that somehow to some day then it will also become a jiva because consciousness is everywhere you need only to reflect it somewhere to have a jiva functioning for a time being yeah so that's the answer uh my question is you mentioned that um the universe is an appearance in consciousness in brahman yes. it's not separate right um but from brahman's point of view um there is no world there is no appearance it yes. exists and from jeeva's point of view the world appears real so who who is aware of the world as an appearance who or what who who can say this world is an appearance in brahman when you say brahman's point of view there is no appearance that's not strictly correct when you talk about saguna brahman in saguna brahman that's brahman plus okay. maya or brahman enabled by maya i meant nirguna brahman okay sorry yeah and from when you talk about appearance at all then you have to talk about saguna brahman saguna brahman okay yeah. so saguna brahman's point of view there is an appearance so appearance comes that's called srishti appearance persists that's called sthiti and appearance disappears again 
that's called Laya. And this cycles back and forth as long as you admit Maya. Okay. And Sivan Brahman is Ishwara, right? The same. Is Ishwara, yes. Okay. And okay. from Jiva's point of view, the only difference is between enlightened Jiva and unenlightened Jiva. As an unenlightened Jiva, this appearance seems to be real. What do you mean real? What exactly is meant by real and not real? Uh, Satya and Mithya. Real, our feeling is that these are separate independent entities apart from me. Because of my body identification, I think that this is a body and this is a table lamp, this is a laptop, those are other bodies separate from me. As long as I'm identified with the body, that's actually true. From that perspective, it is true. Uh, so that is called the Vyavaharika Jagat. But when I shift my identification to consciousness, which is the whole purpose of um, the Mahavakyas, from, per from the consciousness angle, I see none of them are independent realities. See, for example, a very good example used in the Mandukya is the dream example. In the dream, when we are in the dream, the people in the dream, the animals in the dream, the sky and the earth, they really look like the waking world. And we feel something is really happening, good and bad. But when we wake up, our experiences, all of it, subject, object, the people in the dream, even I who was in the dream, the whole thing is nothing apart from me, the dreamer's mind. The dreamer's mind alone in its own place became subject and object and it had a whole dream experience. So the enlightened person is like that. The enlightened person goes through the same appearances as long as there is a body mind, uh, the okay. Jivan Mukta. As long as there is the body mind, uh, the enlightened person goes through the same experiences as us. And uh, only thing is, the enlightened person does not consider them to be real. They consider them to be, uh, all these objects to be appearances in, uh, in me, the consciousness. Okay. That's the difference. Okay. And Swamiji, if, so in the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, does the world actually disappear? From your perspective, it does. If you admit a common sense perspective, that is um, what you might call uh, Srishti Drishtivada. So there's a world and I have come into an existing, pre-existing world. Let's say Ishwar has created the world or uh, you know, Brahma has created the world and I have come into it. I've been given a body. And at that level, all of them are separate realities. You know, Vyavaharika Jagat. Then I sit in meditation and I blank out the external world. I blank out my experience of the body. I shut down the mind. Then for me, the world has disappeared completely for that time being. But if you change your perspective into Drishti Srishti Vada, to me, the experiencer, whose world appears, when I do not experience it, does the world exist? No. It's like, to me, the dreamer, the dream world appears. When I stop dreaming, are those people still there? Is that um, um, activity going on there? Nothing is going on. It it's only appears when you see it. So that's from Drishti Shishti perspective. Yes. Okay, Rahulji, you're next. No, no, I didn't Shishti perspective, yes. So from Drishti Shishti perspective, uh, these things are appearing, but they are not, nothing different from consciousness. Uh, Sri Guru Bhirma. Uh, Swamiji, uh, uh, if there's a distant star that is not yet seen by anybody, yes, does it exist? Oh. It's actually an interesting question. We will think that 
See, there are so many things in this universe which are not objects to consciousness. I mean, let alone my consciousness. My consciousness is so limited. They're not objects to consciousness at all. Uh, so you are, it seemed to say that everything is within consciousness. How is it possible? There are so many things which are not my, within my consciousness. You must make a distinction between that which is within the, the range of your sense organs. There are things which I do not see because my limit, sight is limited. Uh, there are things which I do not hear. There are things which I cannot conceive of, cannot even think about because the range of my thinking and mind are limited. So there are things in this world which my sense organs and mind have not objectified yet. But in one sense, they are still in your awareness. As in what, what sense? As the unknown. If you just say that there is a planet which is totally unknown. So now that planet is not totally unknown. It exists in your mind as that unknown planet. It's already known in a certain sense. To make this thing even more clear, take the dream example. Suppose you're dreaming. Suppose you're taking a walk in the park and meeting people and seeing the lake and the sky and all. And then you sit and think, there are so many things in Manhattan which I don't see right now. Beyond these tall buildings, there's such a vast city and so many things. So it is true that all of Manhattan is not in my mind now. Only this much which I'm seeing and experiencing is in my mind. So there is something in my mind and something outside my mind. But when you wake up, what will be the truth? All that was known to you was a part of your dream in your mind. All that was unknown to you, the rest of Manhattan, the rest of USA, the rest of the universe was also in your mind. When you wake up, the whole thing disappears. It's not that some of it was in your mind and some of it was not in your mind. So there's a difference between what is objectified by the Pramata, but what is also exists as the unknown in the background in a dream. Exactly the same thing in, in, in the waking awareness. It's difficult to wrap our minds around <laughs> because we think I'm aware of only the things which are which I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or I think about, or I can mathematically predict. That much I am is my limit of awareness. But there is something beyond that, a vast world which is unknown. But the, it is known as the unknown so far. And the boundary between the known and the unknown is the boundary between the range of the pramanas and that which is beyond the pramanas. It can be extended. Uh, let me give you one example. Um, we have here a senior most member in the Vedanta Society who is a retired physicist, Bill Conrad. So he keeps on asking the same question. Somebody told me he has asked this question for the last, before you were born also. He's 96 years old now. So same question is going on for the last 50 years. He says, Swami, you think everything is in consciousness? It is not true. Suppose in this room, we put a camera and switch on the camera. Then we all leave this room. So the room is not in our consciousness, but the camera records it. And we see the picture in the camera, the room was very much there when we consciousness being, we conscious beings were not there. When we left the room, it's not that the room disappeared. The room is still there without consciousness. So how are you saying everything depends on consciousness or is in consciousness? Now, what will you reply to that? See, this is the answer. See if you can understand. It's a very simple answer actually. Solution is very simple. I said to him, Bill, this room is in your consciousness. 
the camera is in your consciousness the fact that you slowly left the room together with swami is in your consciousness then when you are coming back into the room is in your consciousness developing the film or seeing the film in the camera and seeing that the room was still existing is also in your consciousness the idea that the room existed without consciousness is also in your consciousness is it not true another way of saying is suppose you did this experiment and you woke up from it the whole experiment was in a dream then the room was in the dream the swami was in the dream you leaving the room and switching on the camera and leaving the room was in the dream coming back and seeing that the room existed when nobody was there the whole thing was in a dream in that case everything was in your mind it's quite possible think about it uh, yeah. swami ji uh, thank you so much for uh, invaluable uh, teachings in vedanta uh, i have a question that is uh, sort of related to the uh, preceding one and a follow up if i have an opportunity uh difficulties in getting the arms around uh uh maya so uh, often maya is uh, compared with a dream but the dreams are not logical uh, they don't seem to always follow the any rules in terms of time space and vastu uh, but if you look at the material world out there uh there are, it seems to follow uh laws of nature which are discovered by science and uh, which has led to some highly precision technological breakthroughs and resulted in devices which eventually we use to be able to communicate as we do today so that is much more substantive and evidence based uh that doesn't quite resemble dream like uh which is not quite uh something that you can uh, substantiate in the same way so i'm trying to reconcile and perhaps you can throw some light in terms yeah. of how do you reconcile the almost unbreakable laws of nature with which this maya is unfolding yes on one hand and supposedly it is all a illusion or a fantasy or 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 a dream thank you very much right. and i have a follow up if possible right two points here first of all uh what i am saying right now what advaita vedanta is saying is that you cannot get around the fact that whatever you experience you must be experiencing in awareness in consciousness because the very definition of experience involves consciousness without consciousness there is no experience at all so even a scientist a hardcore materialist reductionist that consciousness is generated by the brain somehow there are many such not that everybody accepts david chalmers most people do not most scientists will say that no no consciousness is being produced by the brain matter is ultimately real and uh, uh, so so even there even the hardcore materialist holds on to his or her position in consciousness only what what vedanta wants to say is that uh, you cannot work your way around this now within this if you want to say there are two distinct kinds of conscious experiences one is a dream which is fleeting which does not follow rules of desha kala vastu which is uh, 
from a waking note from a waking perspective it is sound looks illogical and other one is the waking experience again in consciousness only where there is regularity there is law and there is stability vidyanand swami in fact in the first chapter says the only distinction between waking and dreaming is that stability in objects of the waking universe stability in terms of persistence in in regularity in law uh, all of these are there he says but does it does it detract from the fact that all of these objects are appearing to consciousness you cannot deny it even the waking world even science so vedanta advaita vedanta actually does not say it's all an illusion in the sense of a dream and therefore science is all fantasy no 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 the beauty of advaita vedanta is at no point does it contradict science all the findings of science the predictions of science are perfectly acceptable in fact vedanta is the advaita vedanta is the, probably the only along with some versions of buddhism the only uh, philosophy is based on religion which have no conflict at all with science so so you mean to essentially say that the maya which is uh, not uh, there is no uh, there is no separation between seer and seen and maya unfolds within consciousness yes. but it unfolds according to supposedly the laws of nature yes that that if you want to make a see there are two perspectives here one is uh, a common sense approach which is in vedanta most of vedanta is according to this what you are just saying it is called uh, srishti drishtivada that means you take it that the world has been formed it's a real world into that you which you have entered and so there is a clear distinction between waking and dreaming uh, so dreaming is dreaming and there are many differences between waking and dreaming the dream objects are appearances in the mind whereas the waking objects exist apart from the mind but not apart from consciousness mind and object both appear in consciousness in the waking and also in the dreaming but in the dreaming additionally it is appearing only within the mind itself so this is a common sense approach and is perfectly reconcilable with science so science works in the waking world Uh, where uh, everything unfolds according to certain regularities yeah and one quick uh, follow up is that there is a, a difference between east and west and particularly india and the west in the sense that in india is generally understood that something takes a, there is a, 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 a rebirth or reincarnation of one thing or another whether it is a tendency or soul in dualism it's understood the the, the trans uh, but in the west that is not quite accepted uh, particularly by the secular society uh, and they believe for example in the uh, evolutionary biology or uh, the evolutionary sciences in which uh, the life actually develops now both being part of maya and so not absolute reality only relative reality does it is there any differentiation in terms of uh, uh, from advaita point of view between two a school of thoughts for the pursuant of advaita all right you have there's a lot to unpack you have said many things um, but i will uh, disagree with all of them first of all that we believe in reincarnation let's take that one reincarnation that we are we go from birth to birth hindus believe a jeevatma goes from birth to birth hindus and jains they believe in that all schools of hinduism believe 
The Buddhists believe not a particular jivatma, but a process is there. It's transmitted. So all Indian schools, except the materialist, they believe that there is there are multiple lives. There is an identity across lives, and there's a transmission from life to life, and the whole thing is fueled, propelled by the law of karma. So this is our our worldview, Indian worldview. And in the West, you're right that in the West people are skeptical about this. This is no, we don't accept this whole karma and rebirth thing. But I have always been puzzled by this. Why are they skeptical? On two grounds, I'm puzzled. One is on the grounds of logic. Another is on the grounds of the history of the West. All Western religions, Christianity, Judaism, all the Middle Eastern religions, I mean like Islam, for example, all of them, every religion in fact, has to believe that something exists after death. If everything is wiped out at the point of death of the body, that means death of the body. If everything is wiped out at the death of the body, it means body is the fundamental reality. If that is so, there's no difference between religion and materialism. The Charvaka says that, the materialist says that at the death of the body, everything is finished. A materialist reductionist today will also say that there is no such thing as soul and uh, you know, after death, anything, nothing at all. The ultimate reality is the body. And at the end of, of the life of the body, everything is finished. There's no question of heaven, hell, enlightenment, immortality, atma, nirvana, nothing of that sort. But Westerners do not believe that. Throughout the history of Western thought, whether you go back to the Greeks or the Romans, or Christianity and Judaism, or afterwards uh, Islam and Middle East, they all believe about existence after death. You look up any religion. So I'm asking, now my question is this, I'm puzzled. And people do say that oh, you um, Indians, you believe in uh, Buddhists, Hindus, you believe in many lives. I say, so do you. I really, I've not found an answer to this question. You believe that something exists after death. There is a soul you know, which goes to heaven or hell, whatever it is, whatever your idea is. So if something exists after death, why it's only one more step to say that other lives are possible. If it goes to heaven or hell, and uh, if that hell or heaven is not permanent, then it will go to some other state. Why not other lives? Why not other bodies? And if it can exist after that, that means it can exist without this body also. Christianity believes that. Judaism believes that. The whole point of religion is that something exists beyond the body. If it exists other than the body, then it's quite possible it existed before this body was born because it has ultimately not rooted in this body. Then it's possible it have many other births. So this is the, my, my puzzlement with the Western position that uh, if you are an outright atheist, if you are Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins and you say there's no karma, no rebirth and all that, then okay, I understand your position because materialism is your position. But if you are a Christian, as many are, I saw in the Harvard Divinity School, no, this karma we don't understand. What are you talking about? Your own religion is entirely about what happens after death. How to get to heaven and not go to hell. What is this thing that exists after death? This immortal soul you keep talking about so much. If it exists after death, then it's not limited to the body. Then what is your objection against future lives? So this is one my puzzlement with the Western position. I don't see what's there. It's just, I feel it's a kind of stupidity and um, uh, unwillingness to think further. And the second answer is, my second part of the answer is based on logic. All science, all reason is basically causality. And when you say why, you're basically asking for a cause. If you follow causality, causality is 
in um, indian terms hindu buddhist jain terms it is nothing other than karma karma means cause and effect in our personal lives if you admit that then our present state of affairs this body is a set of effects there must be a cause and the point of birth does not explain all the causes why does one baby who's just born now suffer so much another baby is so privileged so it extends beyond before this birth and there's so many things that we do in this life and so many things we experience does it exhaust all karma we have done so many things people always ask hitler did so many bad things is one death enough uh, for hitler so many horrible things so so much karma is accumulated where will the result come the cause is there the result must give rise to future births so cause and effect are nothing other than the law of karma and from law of karma past and future births become obvious so this is a logical argument now second part of the question about advaita vedanta and this law of karma law after having said all this advaita vedanta totally denies all this <laughs> advaita vedanta says yes. from, from brahman's perspective neither karma nor birth nor rebirth once adut once said in himalayas are mahatma ji jab janm hi nahi to punarjanm kahe ka advaita not only denies future birth so she is like is it like christianity and islam that it denies not only future birth it denies the present birth also this is all within an appearance it's a movie that you are watching you were not never ever born as a body and body appeared to you when we realize what advaita is trying to say these are all appearances in this uh, in the screen of consciousness chit darpana and the vishwa is like a pratibimba um vishwam darpana drishyamana nagari tulyam the dakshinamurti stotram like if i hold a mirror here and i see uh, you and the trees and the sky behind you in the mirror there is no person no tree no sky it's only mirror similarly in consciousness no body no birth no rebirth but an appearance is there swami ji you really answer my question that the final that i was expecting so thank you very much and i just briefly want to make an observation i heard your puzzlement about western unable to re- accept the rebirth huh. uh, my under, uh, my understanding is that westerner more and more particularly in europe they do not believe in what is they do not believe in bible they do not believe in uh, life after uh, Uh, heaven and hell and so on so that's why i had mentioned secular westerner that's why i didn't yes. mention religious westerner yes and in in uh, extreme case is sam davis that you mentioned he is very acceptance of he was his quite acceptance of uh, advaita and he doesn't believe in uh, uh, what bible says or old testament says but he's much more acceptance on advaita correct so uh, they they are able to reconcile Uh, for instance uh genetic uh and as i mentioned molecular evolution accounting for quite a bit of tendencies besides of course our physical uh uh, uh where we uh, in terms of physical weaknesses and strengths and so on in the mind but still they can from what you just mentioned can pursue advaita based on the fact that this is all maya and uh, it's not important to stress one versus another one as long as you realize that you are not your mind you are not your body and uh, that you are the supreme yeah, yeah. so you don't thank you so much suppose advaita does not force you to accept future births past births karma yes. not even that if you yes. accept that you are experiencing as the uh, upanishad just i mean the panchadashi quoted 
if you are seeing, Shrinavati, you are hearing, uh, Ikshati, you are seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, speaking, that's enough. Ramana Maharshi, somebody went and asked him once, I like this very much, he said, am I qualified for Advaita, for your teaching? Ramana Maharshi said, did you say I? Because his teaching was, who am I? If you can say I, then you're qualified for who am I? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank so, you. so should we hold up the questions till the uh, second session? Yes, I think uh, all the questions have been answered. Very good. So Prabhuji, please take yeah. over. Thank you, Swamiji. This was amazing. You could spend <laughs> time on Q&A. And we'll continue the afternoon session. So try to log in 10 minutes before 4 so we can start the program like this morning. Again, thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you for the wonderful <laughs> questions. Hari Om Swamiji. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Namaste.